Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Special treat this week for listeners, our entire Indie Talks with Mark Melman. He's the national pollster who just did a poll for us. Hi, everybody. Thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, It was nice that Elizabeth gave me all of those titles, uh, considering that everybody who knows anything about The Independent knows she's really the boss. And that's uh, not being facetious. I do want to say a word about Elizabeth, who was the first person I hired uh, to to get on this grand adventure with me. And uh, she, like my staff, uh, have so far exceeded my expectations in terms of work ethic and work product. I hope you guys uh, realize what Elizabeth has done. The other person I want to mention uh, is is, uh, Natalie Keeney. Where's Natalie? Raise your hand, Natalie. Stand up wherever you are. Uh, Natalie helped put this event together. She is one of our great finds. She happens to be the wife of our of our chief technical officer, and I'd get rid of him in a second and keep her. She is, she is fantastic, and and she has been a great find. Uh, my staff is back here. I hope all of you will get get acquainted with my staff, the best staff in journalism back there. Raise your hands. Right. Riley doesn't want to raise his hand because he'll hit the ceiling with it. I don't know if you've seen Riley. He's 6'5". Uh, I want to echo what Elizabeth had to say, which is that we really thank all of you for your support uh, of, of, of the Independent. I know you think that we're releasing some poll results tonight. We're not. We just wanted to get you in the room to talk about uh, uh, the, the Independent. But seriously, I, I, uh, I really do appreciate all of you. Some of you were at the at the Brian Sandoval event, which, which was just a wonderful event. It's just a great room. Myron Martin, where are you? You're here somewhere. Myron Martin and the Smith Center have just been wonderful partners. Myron's back there. I also want to thank you. Look on the table tents on your uh, table there. You'll see the names of our donors uh, for the evening. Bank of George, William Hill, Cover Edge, Boyd Gaming, and Play New Jersey. Let's give them all uh, a round of applause. We thank you for your support. Uh, one of our board members uh, is here, Mike McQueen, who's been just a fantastic asset uh, to the Independent. And I also want to thank our, our wonder, our, more of our, uh, we have lots of partners, and uh, we like our partners because they're all mostly work cheap. Uh, I've learned a lot about the business running a nonprofit. The UNLV TV folks who are here are fantastic. They're super talented. We will. We, we will put this online at some point, thanks, thanks to their uh, efforts. And of course, uh, uh, the, the staff here and the folks serving you drinks are the best in the business. So give them a round of applause as well, please. Uh, I just one slight shameless pitch moment, and then we'll move on to what you really want, which is to hear Mark Melman talk. You don't really care what I'm saying. But I do, I do, I do want to thank everybody who already is a member. How many members are, are, do we have here? Let me see the hands. Thanks to all of you uh, for being members. Uh, this, is, this has been a, 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 a most, I tell people the same thing all the time. So unlike the politicians we cover, I'm consistent. Uh, this is the most exhausting and the most exhilarating thing I've ever done in my life. I'm so proud to be associated with my staff and, 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 and the, what they have produced in about 15 months or so that we have been around. But it's not easy, and it is a nonprofit. And so, uh, we hope that you will tell your friends, uh, tell your enemies, tell your neighbors, 
tell, tell anybody uh, about the independent uh, and, and tell them that, uh, uh, that we have donors that, are, that give as little as $5. We just had, Natalie just sent us a message today. We had some guy just send in $5. And uh, we want more low-dollar donors. Not that we don't love you, but, but uh, we want more low-dollar donors who, who contribute uh, regularly. This has been a dream of mine for a long time. I, I'm thrilled that I have the staff to make it come true, and I'm thrilled to have all of you here uh, tonight. So thank you, and uh, give yourself a round of applause. So now to the main event. It, it's truly a pleasure, uh, uh, and I'm really grateful to have Mark Melman uh, here tonight. Uh, Mark's bona fides are impressive. There's hardly a prominent Democrat uh, that he's not worked for. He's polled for dozens of federal, state, and local candidates, including more than two dozen U.S. senators. He's got a couple of tough races this uh, year as well. He's been involved in successful campaigns outside of the U.S., and he has uh, won numerous awards for his work. He's just simply one of the best uh, at, 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 in the polling business. There's a lot of evidence to back that up. You can look it up. But let me tell you my favorite story about just how good Mark is at what he does. It comes from the toughest race to poll in the state's history. Some of you are old enough to remember this race. And that was Harry Reid versus Sharon Angle in, in, in 2010. <laughs> Mark was Harry Reid's pollster back then. And he'd, he had done polling here before. And Team Reid trusted him. But the race was so volatile. Angle was such a sweet, generous kind of candidate. <laughs> that's the nicest thing that's ever been said about her. And she wouldn't even know what it meant. But that race was a different challenge for Mark. I had some access during that race to, to Reed's internals, and I had already trusted Mark's polling, so I thought uh, they were pretty good. And the folks at Team Reed to consistently told me, despite what, I, what it looked like and despite the candidate's performance, uh, uh, that even after some of Harry Reed's less than sterling moments, he's still ahead. We're comfortably ahead. Uh, and this is while the, you know, the national Republicans were salivating. So, I based my prediction about that race on, on the Sunday before uh, uh, the election on that confidence. And I immediately was buffeted with criticism from the national media and from Republicans who called me to tell me that the National Republican Senatorial Committee and the Sharon Angle internals had the race at a one or two point Sharon Angle victory. So we know what happened. Reed won by six points. But that's not the, that's not the uh, kicker to this story. Shortly after the election, I don't even know if you know this, Mark, I got my hands on Mr. Melman's daily reports to the Reid campaign from September 1st onward. And what I saw astonished even me. Mark never had Reid down by less than five points for that entire two months uh, before the election. He went up a little and down a little, but never left. He had that race nailed. Mark understands the Nevada electorate and has for a long time, as well as anyone who's polled the state on either side of the aisle. That's why I hired him, and that's why he's here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mark Melman. Very good. Thanks. So here's, how we're, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to delay releasing the poll results and drive these people out there crazy. I hope <laughs> Order another drink, because I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you a few questions before we start rolling the slides up here, Mark. And I want to give people a, a, a prism with which to view these results, because I think a lot of people 
get the wrong impression of, of just raw numbers. So let's talk a little bit. One thing I, I want to talk about is, and I've heard this for years since I start, first started covering politics, is that Nevada is notoriously hard to poll. You can't get accurate numbers 24-7 town, transient population. Is it that different to poll here than anywhere else? It is different. Um, there are places that are more different. Hawaii, for example, where we also do a lot of work, uh, is a pretty different place. But it is a very transient population. You have a large minority population. Uh, there are all kinds of things that make a difference. You know, look, the truth is, now it's a secret I'll tell here, but most polling is done at night. Okay, that's when most pollsters call people up because that's when people are at home. Well, you know, if in Las Vegas and Reno, you're calling people at night, you're missing a lot of people who work at night in this town, in Reno. Uh, it doesn't have Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from. Most people aren't working at night. Uh, but here they are. So in Nevada, for example, we learned a long time ago, you have to poll during the day, as well as at the night, to get those workers who uh, are employed in uh, uh, casinos and other kind of venues working during the day. So there's a whole lot of nuances. Every place has nuances. This has a few more than many others. This, a, this poll is early. It's, it's still six months plus before the election. Um, so it was taken in, in, the middle of, in the middle of the month, just a few days ago. Uh, what should people take away from this and what shouldn't they take away from generally from a poll that's done six months before the election? Uh, excellent question. Look, the reality is this is not a prediction. Nobody should look at this and say, oh, we're six months out. This is what the numbers are. This is what it's going to be on Election Day. I'm going to try and show you some of the dynamics that are at play, some of the things that could change these numbers significantly. The reality is, as you'll see, most of these candidates are not terribly well known. Uh, by voters in the state. There are people who are just going to be introduced to them over the next six months, and the way in which they get introduced to those candidates is going to make a big difference in the outcome. So a lot can change from where we are today to where we are on Election Day. But there are some basic underlying facts that I think are, are worth understanding, and the truth is this is where we are today. And this is the, 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 the people that are ahead uh, have to hold on to those leads. The people that are behind have to make them up. All of that is possible. Uh, but this is the place they're starting from. And we do have some primary results we're going to show. It's only seven, I think it's, I think it's seven weeks from today, if I can still do math, that the primary uh, exists. So polling really, the best pollsters are really only as good as their ability to model what the electorate is actually going to look like on election day. And some people, by the way, uh, in keeping with our uh, brand of transparency, we're going to not only post every single uh, uh, polling instrument for the Democratic primary, Republican primary, and statewide. We're going to post all the cross tabs right after this event, so you'll be able to see uh, everything. And, and, and for those of you who are as insane as I am, you, you, you'll, 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 you'll enjoy looking at that stuff. Uh, very few people fit that description. However, very few. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so so, so uh, people are going to look at that. If they do look deeply into this, and I, I want you to explain this. Um, the model that you chose for this, I, I saw that uh, uh, 40 to 36 Democrat is by, by party identification, but 42 to 39 by the actual voter rolls. Why, explain to people why those numbers are different. Well, two different concepts. One is party identification. It's a psychological concept. How do you feel? Do you feel like you're a Democrat? Do you feel like you're a Republican? Do you feel like you're an independent? Do you feel like you lean towards one of those parties or not? But it's a psychological concept. Registration is a legal concept. How'd you sign the form? Uh, and those are two distinct things. The truth is, most people who register as Democrats identify as Democrats. Most people who uh, register as Republicans identify as Republicans. But not everybody. Not everybody. And obviously, there's a lot of people in the middle who, who register as independents who actually do feel that they're really Democrats or really Republicans, even though they signed the form 
uh, saying they're independent. So two different concepts, one psychological, one legal. So uh, I guess what I'm wondering is that generally in off-year elections, we certainly saw this here in 2014, terrible turnout for the Democrats, it really cost them. The model that you're suggesting this year, is, is enthusiasm different out there in Nevada and elsewhere uh, for, for either party uh, than it usually is? Well, no question about that. Let me sort of take that in two parts. One is 2014, terrible year for Democrats. But the truth is the races uh, in 2014 were essentially what we call orphan races. There was a gubernatorial race, but there was a totally not competitive uh, gubernatorial race. You don't so, think none of the above was a good candidate yes, for the Democrats? I, <laughs> you know, we've tried worse, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, not in this state, of course. Um, the, uh, so the governor's race was not competitive at all. There was no Senate race, obviously no presidential race. So you really, you know, the top of the ticket essentially was the uh, AG race for all intents and purposes. And as as interested as we all are in politics, most people don't know who the attorney general is, most people don't care who the attorney general is, and they're certainly not willing to get up from their living room or from their workplace and go to the polls to vote for that. And the people who do tend to vote most often are Republicans, in fact. They're the kind of people who vote more often than Democrats. So 2014 was very much a unique year. This year, you do have a competitive governor's race, you do have a competitive Senate race. It's not going to be anything like uh, 2014 in my view. But what we're doing, and honestly, we're only as good as the history and understanding the history. When there's something that's radically discontinuous, we don't do so well. Uh, like 2014, radically discontinuous, uh, hard to know what's going on there. But most elections, most of the time, follow a rough pattern. And so we know what the relationship is between, for example, the registration on the one hand and the turnout on the other. We know how to discount the registration to get to the turnout and so on, because these are fairly consistent numbers over time. So again, looking at all of that gives us a sense of what this electorate's likely to look at, look like, uh, and nothing like 14. Second point has to do with the enthusiasm that, that you're alluding to. Uh, there is, we've seen it in the primaries so far. We don't know if it'll be present for sure in the general election uh, in November, but it's certainly been evident in primaries across the country. We've seen turnout, uh, be anywhere from zero to 75% higher than it typically is in an off-year primary in states and districts uh, around the country, mainly districts around the country. Um, and that is a sign of the, and almost all of that additional vote uh, is going to Democrats. We've seen tremendous enthusiasm on the part of Democrats. You can measure it in a lot of different ways. You can measure it in that turnout. You can measure it in the number of candidates in primaries that there are. Um, you know, we. We are we're involved in a race in, in uh, Houston area uh, where there were literally seven candidates running for a seat that no one of serious note had ever run for before on the Democratic side. Never been up, able to put up a serious candidate. There were seven candidates in the race. Uh, we're doing a contest in Ohio that there's never been a strong Democrat. There are two people running against each other, one of whom is a, a, a colonel in the, uh, uh, in the Marines, uh, pilot, so again, all, uh, tremendous, can tremendous uh, outpouring of candidates running. That's another measure of the enthusiasm. The money that Democrats are raising, again, and, and at the grassroots level, another measure of the enthusiasm. So no matter how you look at the measures of enthusiasm this time around, Democrats are on the, on the positive end relative to Republicans. All right, I'm gonna, I promise I'm going to get to the results after this final question. First, let me tell my staff that if I don't see the phrase radically discontinuous in the paper tomorrow, <laughs> we have a problem. 
So the obvious thing that, that you know, and, and I'm, I, I don't mind taking heat for you, Mark. You're worth taking heat for. Is look, here's a Democratic pollster. He's obviously skews his poll toward the Democrats. Republican pollsters get accused of the same things. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are partisan Republicans who are in your business who you respect, just as a lot of Republicans respect you. What can you do about that? Anything? Well, you can be honest, number one. Um, and, and the truth is, most of us are. You know, people will tell you, and they're right, the polls they see from Democrats tend to favor Democrats. The polls they see from Republicans tend to favor Republicans. That doesn't mean that people are uh, manipulating the results. That's what we call in social science selection bias. We don't release the polls where our clients aren't doing well, okay? Um, <clears throat> and the Republicans don't either. So you never see us come out and say, hey, we're 10 points behind, you know? We just feel an obligation to let you know because that's not our job. Our job when working for campaigns is to help those campaigns win. And telling you we're 10 points behind doesn't help us win. Um, so all of us release the numbers that are good when, they, when that seems appropriate, when it's gonna be useful to the campaign. Uh, and we almost always hide the numbers that are bad uh, because that doesn't help us. But that doesn't mean we're not getting numbers that are bad for our clients all the time. Uh, it happens all the time. You just don't see those numbers. So the reality is most of us know what we're doing pretty well. Most of us do a pretty good job. Uh, and most of us are pretty honest about what we do. In this case, uh, John asked us to figure out what the reality was and pay no attention to where the, uh, the, the chips fell. And that's exactly what we did. These are the results we got. Indeed. And you're going to see in a few minutes that some of Mark's Democratic friends may not be too thrilled with him uh, with, with one, at least one of these results. So. Elizabeth is uh, going to uh, run these slides, I hope, uh, and uh, let's, let's go to the first one, just show you the methodology uh, of, of the poll. And I'm just going to assume those slides are up there because I don't want to have to stand up. So uh, the 600 uh, uh, statewide, uh, and, they, and, and Mark did oversamples of the uh, statewide electorates for uh, Democratic and Republican primaries. Those are 400. Uh, April 12th to 19th, margin of error is slightly higher, as you can see, uh, for the primaries. And of course, once you get into the cross tabs, uh, if you're looking at demographics for, for Clark County alone or, or Hispanics, you're going to have a larger uh, you're going to have a larger margin of error. All right. So here's the general finding: Republicans face a challenging but not insurmountable uh, in environment. Why do you say that? Well, maybe we can go to the next slide, let's, and I'll tell you why. Here. Um, okay, let's go to the next slide, and he'll tell us um, why. Th this <laughs> is the so if we sort of look at the state in terms of a combination of its partisanship and ideology. What you see is sort of the left, if you will, uh, Democrats, liberals, uh, liberal independents, uh, make up about 44% of the state, uh, those on the right about 41. That's not a huge difference, but it's a difference that favors Democrats. A lot of places you don't have that. You haven't always had that in this state, but you do now. Uh, obviously, the, the folks in the very middle there, the moderate independents, are gonna be the people who really determine the outcome. There's a lot of them, and that's why these races, many of them could go either way. Um, the next. Let's, let's look at, uh, this, this is gonna be really interesting, I think, for people. This is gonna be very important for the race, and that's how Trump looks uh, in, in this state. His numbers uh, in this state are terrible, Mark. Are, how do they compare to other states? First, tell me that, do you think? So, th the reality is they are a little bit worse here than they are in, in other states. Um, not 39 to 56. 39, that's, yeah, that, that favorable is, view, 56%, unfavorable for Trump. And you can That's see, like Harry Reid in 2010, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not getting into that. <laughs> um, and there's even Republicans who are not happy with, uh, with Trump. Um, Democrats are almost unanimous in being unhappy with Trump. So uh, he is a drag on the ticket. There's just no question in midterm elections, 
the, uh, uh, the president plays a role. Uh, even if people aren't directly saying, oh, I'm going to vote for this candidate or that candidate because of the president, the president's popularity is one of the most important determinants of how those elections turn out. And this president is very unpopular nationwide. He's even more unpopular here in Nevada. Look at women, though. I mean, women under 40, 14 percent, 81 percent. You look at uh, the Hispanic numbers in here, 22 to 72. I mean, th that's devastating, though. Very, very difficult for him. I mean, look, he lost the state to begin with while he was winning other places, other swing states around the country. Uh, this was never particularly friendly territory for him, but it's become much more hostile. So Trump looks terrible here. Democrats' enthusiasm are up. And yet, next slide, Elizabeth. Senate race is tied. Um, Let's show the numbers. Yeah. So, well, first we're going to look at the favorable unfavorables yeah. here. Okay. I apologize, because yep. I don't know this by here, heart. Here, here. Um, oh, great. I'll just oh, hand you the slide. <laughs> that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, uh, for my neck at least, um, look, uh, Jackie Rosen is, is less well known than Heller to be expected. She represents, you know, one district in the state. He represents the entire state. So his hard name ID is over 40 points higher than hers. Um, but she, among the people that know each of them, she is more popular than he is. Uh, so, for example, you look at that mean, not to get too technical on you, but that mean is an average of, on that favorability scale, where four means it's a, someone said it's a very favorable impression of each candidate, three means somewhat favorable, two somewhat unfavorable, one very unfavorable. So that mean is the average. It takes out the difference in the, in the name ID. Oh, you're wonderful. Thank uh, you very much. I told you Natalie was the best, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, the, uh, it takes out the difference in the name ID, and you see that she is actually more popular among the people that know her. Uh, than he is among the people that know him. You can see that right off the bat by just seeing that she's net plus five. That is 5% more favorable than unfavorable. Heller is minus two. More people have an unfavorable opinion uh, of Heller than have a favorable opinion. Um, and you look at the next slide, you can see a little more detail on how people feel about Heller. I'm actually even going to now need my glasses. Um, and you see, first of all, that the people with intense views, the people who have a very unfavorable view, uh, are meaningfully larger than the people with a very favorable view of Heller. So only 16% very favorable, 24% very unfavorable. So the intensity here working against Heller. Um, and you can see that the uh, moderate independents, I mentioned before that critical swing group, really don't like him, 28 favorable, uh, 44 unfavorable. And even among Republicans, he's struggling. Uh, only 60% of Republicans have a favorable view, uh, almost one in four, between one in four and one in five, Republicans has an unfavorable view of Heller. So those are all big problems for him going forward. Um, one more, uh, we go to Jackie Rosen, uh, different position. She is, again, more popular among those who know her, but substantially less well-known um, and less variation, really, for her. Uh, but she is uh, net favorable among almost all the segments, except for Republicans uh, themselves and uh, segments that are, are tend to be very Republican, but uh, non-college men, for example. So then you get to the horse race number, and Heller leads by one point, statistically and frankly at this point substantively insignificant. And again, you look at the intensity, you see that she actually leads among those people who are strongly committed uh, to one candidate or the other. Um, the uh, uh, She's doing uh, a little bit worse among Democrats at this point than he is among Republicans. Uh, but those uh, independents are really splitting fairly evenly at this point. A lot of them undecided. But that's what's giving him that very small uh, one-point lead at this stage of the game. 
So let's look at a couple of slides, and then, okay. and then we'll, I'll ask you some general questions sure. about the Senate race. So and the next so, one is – Yeah, so this is a, another way that we try and get past what uh, – just pure name identification. And we say, okay, what's the horse race among those people that know both these candidates? Big disparity in who knows them. What if we just look at the people that know both of them? Because by the time we get to Election Day, they're going to be about equally well-known uh, in the state. Well, Rosen has a, a, a big advantage among those people. But we've got to remember, at this point, that's pretty biased towards her. Who are the people that are most likely to know her? People in her district. Uh, they have, a, obviously, a, a different kind of attachment to her. Democrats more likely to know her than Republicans. So, yes, she's ahead among the people that know both candidates. But that is a, a somewhat biased measure on the one hand. On the other hand, she's got a pretty big lead. Um, the, um, uh, if we look at the undecideds, though, uh, who are undecided in the Senate race, uh, we see, first of all, that they are much more likely to be independents than they are uh, to be uh, Democrats, and even a little bit more likely to be Republicans than they are to be Democrats. But look at that Trump favorability among those undecideds. Uh, two to one unfavorable views of Trump among those Senate undecideds. So again, we're saying that the uh, people's attitude towards the president, important in determining uh, their midterm vote. Here you have a group of undecideds that, absent Trump, could actually be leaning slightly towards Heller, but because of Trump, look like they're leaning uh, rather against him. So if we go one more, uh, we do a, a model that uh, uh, tells us how to allocate those undecideds. Um, again, imperfect, uh, like every model is, as uh, George Box, the famous among statisticians, statisticians said, I say George Box, really no famous George Box, nobody's ever heard of him except me. Um, but he was a famous statistician, and he once said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, so this is a model that is going to be wrong, but I think is useful, uh, allows us to allocate those undecideds, and it's, we're going to do this uh, for all the races, but it gives Rosen uh, about a one-point uh, one margin. Uh, and then finally in this set, um, there's a real difference between the more frequent voters and the less frequent voters. Um, Heller actually leads by seven points, among the more frequent voters, uh, Rosen leads by nine among the less frequent voters. But, 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 this is one of the big mistakes that was made in, uh, uh, in Senator Reid's race and others around the country by Republicans. They say, well, we're only going to get the frequent voters. That's the people we really have to focus on because those are the people who show up, the likely voters. But you know what? There has never been an electorate that's been made up exclusively of likely voters. Never happened in history before. Uh, there's always a number of unlikely voters. Think of it this way. When you're saying someone's a likely voter, you're making a probability statement. Maybe you're saying they have an 80% chance of turning out, which means that out of every 100 of them, 20 aren't going to turn out. And if you say, well, we have some unlikely voters, you're also making a probability statement. Maybe they only have a 20% chance of turning out, but out of every 100, 20 of them are going to show up. So if you have 200 voters, 100 likely, 100 unlikely, you're going to end up with 80 likely voters and 20 unlikely voters on the average. So you're always going to have some of these less likely voters. They're overwhelmingly, obviously, for, uh, for Rosen. The frequent voters, the people who come out time after time after time, much more likely to be for Heller. So let's talk about the Senate race for, for a second. I, and let me just present a proposition to you based on these numbers, Mark. And, and that is that if I'm Dean Heller, and I've made every mistake known to man in the last six months, and Donald Trump. I'm trying to not be biased. So I, I know. I, say no, that. I can say this. <laughs> yes. Donald Trump's numbers are absolutely horrific uh, in in this state. And Trump and Teller is now because he thought he was going to have a primary has attached himself to Trump. It's going to be hard for him to detach himself now. And yet, after all of that, 
He's dead even in, 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 in this race. And so what I'm, if I'm Dean Heller's campaign, I'm saying Jackie Rosen is not that well-known. Uh, I now have an opportunity in the six months that are left to define her because I'll have plenty of money to do that, and I can win this race. If you're Dean Heller, you are saying you can win this race. Uh, it's a very tough race for him for all the reasons we've outlined, but he's, he's down, tied. but he's not he's out. Tied. He's tied. He's tied. But he's got a lot of factors working against him, uh, and in fact, I would argue that the fact that Rosen isn't that well-known is actually a factor against him because if she becomes better known, she's going to pick up She'll consolidate the votes. base and, exactly. and do that. Exactly. Um, but look, he, it is going to be in his interest to go out, as you rightly said, to go out and try and define Rosen early. Uh, that means negative. Um, and you always have to make a judgment. How are people going to react to that negative? Are they going to be mad at Jackie Rosen for what we're saying about her? Or are they going to be mad at me, mean Dean Heller, for being mean to Jackie Rosen? So that's always the trade-off one has to make. But you can imagine that Heller, I would imagine that Heller's likely to be pretty negative, likely to be pretty negative first in an effort to, uh, to define her. But look, the other side of the reality is there's not a lot to go at. Um, she hasn't been in office that long. Uh, there's really not a lot to be able to say, wow, she's voted wrong all these times because but they can, they can always find things. I mean, they, they say she went to a fundraiser with Jane Fonda, so she hates veterans. They'll tire to Nancy Pelosi. They'll do all the stuff that's yes. been done. And before we move on uh, to, to, to the governor's race, I guess what I'd say is maybe this dynamic isn't too dissimilar from what you confronted in 2010. You have a very unpopular incumbent whose numbers probably aren't going to get better against a relatively unknown person running who Harry Reid's campaign brilliantly was able to define in the six weeks or so after the primary, and that's how he survived. That is importantly how he survived. We, we did pass some other positive thresholds, I want to emphasize, yeah. um, and the work he did on City Center, for example, very, very important in that respect. Other things he'd done for the state in alternative energy. You know how he got special favors for a casino? Never mind. Go, go ahead. <laughs> He helped save uh, thousands of jobs. Wait a second. I, I, th I, think, I think I like MGM. Don't I, Elizabeth? Wait a second. Never mind. <laughs> no. But be that as it may, the, the, um, there's no question that defining angle was very important to our victory. No question about it. Um, there's also no question that it wasn't easy. Uh, when we first looked at a, a slew of negative ads, we were thinking of running against angle, and we tested them. What we found is people didn't believe them because they thought nobody could be that crazy. <laughs> Um, they thought we must be taking, I'm literally be true, people thought we must be taking her out of context, we must be twisting what she said, uh, because literally nobody could be that crazy. Um, so we scrapped that whole first flight of ads, and as you may or may not recall, I do, uh, most of our negative attacks featured her talking. Uh, and they featured her talking because that made them a lot more credible than when a narrator spoke. Yeah, I, I assume that there will be no clips of Jackie Rosen talking about Second Amendment remedies. But <laughs> and Jackie Rosen certainly isn't uh, Sharon Angle. But certainly, they you would uh, you would agree that they have an opportunity because she's not well known. If they can find a way to skillfully define her, he can survive. No question. Okay. All right. Let's go on to the governor's race. First Democratic primary. So uh, at this point. Um, Let's look at the favorabilities first. Again, we have one candidate that is, at this point, much better known than the other uh, among Democrats. Uh, that's part of the, partly a result of the fact that uh, Sislak has been on TV for many weeks. I don't know exactly how long, but yeah. many weeks. Um, Chris G. just went on TV yesterday. So she's not really had a chance to communicate uh, to large numbers of people in the state. But as you can see, there's a better than a 20-point difference uh, in their hard ID. 
better than a 20-point difference, and they're favorable. They're both very much liked by the Democrats who know them, uh, but obviously more people know and like Steve Sisolak at this point. So if we look at the primary horse race, uh, Sisolak has a large lead at this stage of the game, 44% uh, for him, 16% for Chris G, 40% uh, undecided at this stage. So a lot of voters telling us, you know what, I really don't know enough about these two to make a decision. Uh, in a general election, you have things like party identification that are anchors. People tell, you may say, like, I really don't know about that much about Heller or Rosen, but I know I'm a Democrat or I know I'm a Republican, so that's the candidate I'm voting for. When you have a primary, you don't have those kind of anchors. So it's really based on the information people have, the impressions they have of the candidates themselves. And as you can see, Sisolak is leading in, uh, in every group uh, by large margins, uh, smallest margin among the under 40s, but that's a relatively small proportion of the uh, primary electorate. But again, I want to stress, this is before Chris G's had really an opportunity to communicate about herself to a large audience, and Sisolak has already been communicating to this larger audience about himself. 28% uh, lead, uh, lots of undecided, of course, but it's only seven weeks to go. She has a huge financial disadvantage. She's now getting some third-party help. Uh, the state t uh, um, uh, teachers union is now pounding Sisolak. Uh, they say they have a seven-figure buy. Uh, is it an insurmountable lead, do you think, Mark? I, I don't think it's an insurmountable lead. When, when you look at a primary, if this were a general election, it would be a different story. In a primary, you see all the time, uh, not all the time, but with some regularity, you see people uh, coming back from these kinds of deficits to win primaries. That's entirely possible, and it's entirely possible to do it in the seven weeks. It is hard to do it if you're at a significant financial disadvantage. disadvantage. Uh, again, the IE, the independent expenditure on her behalf, can help even that up. Uh, to what extent they will actually even it up or not, I don't know the answer to that. But if you're outspent significantly, it's very hard to make up that ground. If you're spending even or you can spend more than your opponent, uh, making up that ground is, is really quite possible. All right, let's, talk, let's take a look at the, what turns out to be a lot less interesting Republican side. Yes. So Laxalt's advantage is even greater. Uh, if you look at the favorabilities on the next slide, uh, you'll see that uh, Adam Laxalt is uh, well known. Uh, not for not being a laxalt, I guess, but um, uh, 60, fake laxalt, fake lawyer, fake attorney general. No, sorry, he, I'm being partisan. He, he can't get away from it. <laughs> he can't get away from it. The, uh, sorry. Um, but uh, laxalt is uh, well known, 69% uh, uh, hard ID among Republicans. Again, these Republicans really like him. 59% uh, favorable, only 10% unfavorable. I mean, this is a guy who has real strength uh, on the Republican side. Uh, Schwartz and Fisher uh, really barely blips. Less than 20% hard ID, and the people that know them don't necessarily like them all that well. <laughs> then uh, when you look at the, uh, uh, the horse race, here you find something that's more insurmountable. Um, <laughs> You have a three-way race, you have one candidate, Adam Laxalt, at 55% of the vote. Uh, doesn't take a math genius to know that you don't even need 50% to win a three-way race, <laughs> as long as Fisher's getting that too. Um, but he's well over 50% and 40% strong vote, easy to win with 40%. If Laxalt just keeps what he has, he's got this race uh, uh, won uh, in the primary. Uh, and obviously they would need tremendous resources to be able to be competitive with him. Uh, I mean. Schwartz is barely better known than the guy who's riding the bike around the state. <laughs> I mean, come, and he's a, he's a constitutional officer. I mean, that's bad news, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's look at the, we did the general election matchups in the governor's race as well. Let's take a look at those. 
Okay. So here we're looking now at the favorabilities. Before we were just looking at the Democrats for uh, Sisolak and, and Chris G and for Laxalt at the Republicans. Now we're looking at the general electorate, so both parties plus independents uh, for uh, the governor's, the general election for governor. And you see that uh, Sisolak is, uh, and uh, Laxalt uh, are about even in name ID. Uh, Chris G below that by still about 20 points. Um, but Laxalt and, and uh, Sisolak fairly evenly matched. When you look at those mean scores, those average favorability scores, you'll notice that they're also very evenly matched. 2.72 for Sisolak, 2.7 uh, for Laxalt. So people who know them tend to think uh, uh, quite similarly of them. Uh, Adam Laxalt's unfavorables are one point higher than Sisolak's, basically meaningless. His favorables are about four points lower. Uh, he is a few points less well-known uh, than Sisolak. But these guys are, are uh, e pretty evenly matched uh, at this point. Um, and uh, nonetheless, when you uh, look at the uh, horse race numbers, um, the uh, uh, Sisolak is leading uh, Laxalt by six points uh, at this stage of the game. Uh, as we saw a second ago, uh, Chris G, much less well-known uh, than, uh, than Laxalt is in the general electorate, and she's behind uh, by a pretty negligible two points at this stage of the game. Again, still a lot of undecideds. Um, so... Uh, Again, if we look at the next slide, you'll be able to see that um, uh, this time uh, Sisolak and Laxalt uh, actually do about equally well. Uh, let me rephrase that, sorry. Sisolak does a little bit better among Democrats than Laxalt does among Republicans. And among independents and moderate independents, among moderate independents, Sisolak actually leads. They're pretty even among independents overall. So that nets out, obviously, to about a six-point lead. Uh, for Sisolak at this point. Um, the, uh, uh, on the uh, uh, Chris G side, uh, again, Laxalt is, uh, is two points ahead there. You can see that he is doing better among Republicans than she is among Democrats. So uh, again, that's something that would likely change pretty easily, which would bring her much closer to him or even closer to him. Um, and among independents, though, uh, Laxalt is ahead but again, tied among those moderate uh, independents. So uh, again, that would be a, uh, a close race. We did the same kind of uh, analysis, uh, sort of knowing both candidates. Uh, Sisolak, people who know both Sisolak and Laxalt give Sisolak a 10-point margin. People who know both Chris G and Laxalt give Chris G a two-point margin uh, in this race. Now again, is that a perfect indicator? No. Uh, for the reasons talked about, but it's, it's one kind of indicator. Uh, you'll see on the next slide, we did the same kind of allocation model, uh, and Sisolak's vote act, or margin actually improves uh, from six points to nine points uh, when we've allocated uh, those undecideds, and so does uh, Chris G's. So initially, she's two points behind, but if you allocate those undecideds based on their other predilections, uh, she would be six points ahead. Uh, she's not six points ahead now, uh, she's two points behind, but if you think about how those undecideds might go, that would lead you to think that she has uh, also a very clear opportunity of winning this race if she's the nominee, but she's got a tough way to go to get there. So it's fair to say right now that the race, whether uh, uh, June Kiliani or Sislak is the nominee, is relatively close, right? I mean, th th that's the best way to describe it, right? It's relatively close, but I would say that, you know, again, Sislak I think, has a clear advantage, uh, Chris G. more even. It, does that mean that uh, um, she is a substantially weaker general election candidate, or is it just because she's not that well-known? 
It's largely because she's just less well-known. So she's not able to generate the same kind of democratic enthusiasm at this point than Sisolak is. Uh, but if she were the nominee, she would. Um, independence, that's a different story. It's a, it's a tougher audience. And how each of them would play there, it's really impossible for us to know. So that's one of those things where we have to say, this is what it looks like today. But what it's going to look like six months from now, or even seven weeks from now, uh, hard to know. I'm wondering what the Trump factor might or might not be in a race like governor. Like the Senate race is going to be up top, then you're going to go right to governor. Is there is there a Trump factor that could affect this race, even though it's not a federal race? No question about it. The, Trump has has two kinds of effects. Um, I mean, every president has two kinds of effects in these in these midterm elections. One is a, an indirect effect on vote. That is, people are mad at the president and they take it out on whichever party he belongs to. They're more likely to take it out in gubernatorial, sorry, in congressional or senatorial races, a little less likely to do so in gubernatorial races, but it still happens in gubernatorial races. The second way that somebody who's as bad off as Trump is, frankly, has an impact is through turnout. There are a number, significant number of disillusioned, upset Republicans uh, in this state and around the country, <clears throat> and they are just less likely to turn out. So that's also going to have an impact on these races. Across a lot of these races, I've noticed, and we're going to get to the down-ballot ones in just a second, independents, which are, are, are a significant portion of the electorate here, by the time of the election, uh, Mark, there will be probably about 30% of, of registered voters who are not registered with either uh, major party. But right now, they seem to be leaning toward the Democratic candidate in most of these races. Is that generally true around the country that the, because of the Trump factor or, or what? Well, two things. Uh, go back first to, to my first or second slide, where we looked at the ideological complexion together with the, uh, uh, with the uh, partisan complexion of the state. And these independents in Nevada lean a little bit more to the left, ever so slightly, uh, than independents in some other places. But that's what's happening today here. Um, second uh, factor is is the Trump factor. There's just no question that Trump is having an impact on those independents who, as we saw, really dislike him. And as I say, that does come into play. All right, let's look at some of these uh, uh, down-ballot races. A lot of these candidates are not that well-known. Uh, lots of undecided is the first slide. So let's look at Lieutenant Governor uh, first and what you found there. Sure. So uh, Kate Marshall and uh, Michael Roberson about equally well-known, or about equally unknown is more appropriately. 17% um, hard ID for Marshall, 18% for Roberson. But you see there is a pretty big difference among that small number that know them. Uh, Kate Marshall net favorable by eight points. Um, Roberson equal in, in terms of uh, favorable, unfavorables. Uh, equal numbers of people having favorable and unfavorable attitudes toward him. That's not a good place to be uh, for obvious reasons. And we see that translates into the vote. Uh, Marshall's ahead by 13 points today. Uh, again, a large undecided because you have unknown candidates. Most of those people, not all, but most of those uh, 67 that have made up their mind, 67% that have made up their mind, are really doing that based on party. Some of them know the candidates, but obviously very few. When you do the allocation model uh, and allocate those undecideds, uh, the race gets a little bit closer, but still an 11-point mar margin for Marshall. And there's 13% of these undecideds that you just can't allocate because they actually know nothing about the candidates. There's no basis on which to allocate. It's really something. I, I don't even know if you know this, but Kate Marshall essentially being this unknown, she was a two-term statewide office holder not that long ago. People just don't remember. People don't remember. Um, you know, and, and I don't mean this directed to her, but we see it all across the country. The truth is, 
who your lieutenant governor is, who your secretary of state is, who your uh, treasurer, uh, treasurer yeah. is. These are not things that are very important to most people. They're very important to people who come here for events like this. <laughs> um, but <laughs> go home, you know, go to McDonald's, you will not find too many people for whom the straight treasurer is an important office. So this is not, these are not normal people here? Is that what you're saying? Okay. We are not normal. <laughs> okay, there is no question about it. Um, we spend our time and our focus on, on political matters. Most people spend time on other things. Right. And What's wrong maybe with they're them? wiser. What's yes. wrong with them? No, okay. All right, let's go <laughs> on. Two let's, different perspectives. Let's go on to the AG's race. Sure. And again, you have uh, two folks who are generally unknown. Uh, Ford at about 15% hard ID. Uh, plus uh, three, Duncan at about 9% hard ID, plus one. Uh, that gives, again, with the sort of Democratic lean, that gives Ford a, a nine-point margin. At this point, with the allocation, gets it to a six-point margin, still keeps a six-point margin, but again, 14% that we just can't allocate at the present. Okay. And uh, speaking of relatively uh, unknown people, um, I should have asked you for pronunciations on these folks. Barbara Sagaski and Nelson Larajo. Yes, You're those welcome. people. You're welcome. Sagaski um, <laughs> uh, is uh, uh, is less uh, is better known, about two to one, but she's only twenty one percent. Uh, both of them are are net favorable. Here you have a little closer vote because these ha folks have. Uh, uh, I mean, Sagaski. Uh, uh, is the better is the Republican, but is better known, uh, somewhat higher favorable. So here it's a closer race. Democrats still ahead by five points, gets down to four uh, with the allocation. Uh, but again, a lot of people that we can't allocate at the moment. So without denigrating our, our own poll, would it, would it be fair to say that these results for these down ballot races mean nothing or do they mean something? Well, they mean something to me. Um, <laughs> and. Did you get your money? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it, it, as you said, it's a nonprofit. Um, so uh, here's what they mean to me in these down ballot races. That, again, it follows from everything we've been saying. There is a Democratic advantage in the state going into this election year, 2018, for the reasons we've talked about. Uh, and that advantage works its way through these down ballot races as well. Um, these down ballot people are going to be better known by the time we get to election day, but they are not even on election day. They are not going to be nearly as well known as those candidates for governor and as the candidates for Senate. Uh, the difference in spending is going to be orders of magnitude, three, ten times uh, different. So people will become familiar to some extent to their chagrin from all those TV ads uh, with the governor and Senate candidates. They're not going to ever get as familiar with these folks as they are with the uh, uh, with those at the, the top of the ticket races. And so the result is that partisanship is going to make a lot more difference for these down ballot races than it does at the top of the ticket. All right, let's go on to our issue questions. We asked some uh, questions about the uh, energy initiatives and, and uh, some, we'll get to some school choice questions in a minute too. First of all, take a look at what's known as ECI. It's in a strong position. It is 54% uh, in favor. Obviously that's fewer than voted for it last time, uh, many fewer. But uh, still, uh, a lead, and again, there's no reason to believe that people necessarily remember that well what they voted for uh, last time. It's going to be a very different kind of campaign this time on the no side, in terms of the, the spending and the, the uh, uh, activity on the no side. But right now, 54% saying yes, 16% saying no, 30% uh, uh, undecided uh, at this stage of the game. 
Uh, and as you can see, uh, this is uh, influenced by partisanship, but not very much. Uh, Democrats more likely than Republicans and independents to favor this initiative. But while you have 61% of Democrats in favor, you've got 49% of independents, you've got 50% of Republicans in favor of this initiative. And the difference on the no side, you know, the vote on the no side ranges from three to 19%. So there's no segment here at the moment where the no side on this energy initiative uh, has even a significant foothold. Obviously, they're going to work to change that. They're going to spend a lot of money to change that, presumably. But at this point, there's not even a foothold for them to work with. Uh, have, you, have you done a lot of polling for initiatives? In, in, yes. So, you know, there should be this so-called conventional wisdom that you better start really high because when the no's come at you, people are more likely to vote no. So if you don't start at at least whatever X is, 55%, 60%, you're going to lose. Is this... Is this a good place for them to be starting? I know it's a 38-point lead, but is this a good place for them to be starting? It's a good place. You know, you'd rather be at 70 than at 54. There's no question about it. Um, but th that sort of rule of thumb is one that is, you know, true except when it's not. And it's not true in a whole lot of cases. I mean, I've done initiatives that start out behind where we've won, uh, let alone start out with less than 60, 70 percent of the vote, 55 percent of the vote, uh, ended up winning. Uh, so th that's sort of a conventional wisdom worth what all conventional wisdom's worth, which is not very much uh, sometimes. Um, so, but it's quite clear that when you read the words here, and that's really what most people are talking, are, are looking at, you know, competitive retail electric uh, energy market prohibits granting of monopolies and exclusive franchises for the generation of electricity. That's a pretty positive sounding statement. So natural that people are going to be for it. Obviously, the no side is going to try and tell you all kinds of things that are wrong with this initiative and how successful they'll be obviously remains to be seen. I will say we, we did the gun initiative here uh, last cycle and we started out with about 90% of the vote um, and we won but by much with much less than 90 with like a few thousand votes and we, we knew that was coming by looking at the uh, uh, underlying structure of people's attitudes on this issue but the fact that you're 90% doesn't mean you're going to win. Uh, in Maine, the same initiative was on the ballot. We had nothing to do with that one. But the same initiative was on the ballot. They also started at 90%. They lost by six points. So we, we, did, some, we did a follow-up on this where we gave what supporters and our opponents are saying, and the, and the yes actually went up. Yes. The yes went up and the no went down. Only two points, but uh, still, gain for the yes. So the arguments, um, at least as we put them to people, and I assume that the, the, yet both the yes side and the no side are going to spend a lot of money figuring out what the best arguments are, uh, we're not doing that for them here. Um, but when you sort of take their basic arguments as they're putting them out to the public these days, there's no question that the yes argument far outdoes the no argument. So you wouldn't say this is over yet, but they, they have a strong advantage? I would say the yes side has a strong advantage, but it's certainly not over. Assuming that they're going to be spending the kind of money on the no side that I understand they're going to be spending. You read the Nevada Independent, do you not? What else? Well, thank you. Okay. <laughs> so there's also there's another energy initiative, and it's also looking good. Yes, and this is a uh, renewable energy initiative. Renewable energy uh, that is a renewable portfolio standard, basically saying that at least 50% uh, of uh, energy providers uh, has to come from renewable uh, sources. Um, this starts out in an even stronger position, 68% in favor, 20% uh, opposed, uh, obviously a 48-point uh, margin. Uh, and again, you see support, higher support, obviously, but support across the board. Here, you have majorities of Republicans, independents, uh, and almost unanimous support from Democrats 
in favor of this initiative. Again, can that change if the no side spends a lot of money? Uh, it can, but this is an even stronger position, obviously, to start Unlikely with. for this to lose. Um, not very likely at all for it to lose. And again, that, I would say this for sure. If the no side isn't spending a barrel of money, it's not going to lose. If so, they spend a barrel of money, more possible. There are some people in the audience who, who, are, who are behind this campaign. They would really have to screw it up to lose more? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's I'm sure to they'll the do a wonderful job. Um, no, but look, I mean, the truth is, you know, and I, as I said, I've done a lot of initiative campaigns, and a lot of the ways that you win initiative campaigns have almost nothing to do with what's on the ballot. Okay, we did one many years ago, and a number of years ago in California about union dues, uh, and basically the initiative said that if you don't want your union dues to go to politics, uh, they didn't have to. Um, well, most people thought that was a pretty good idea. Uh, and we started out well behind. People really very much in favor of that. We ended up winning that race talking about outsourcing. Um, now, outsourcing really had nothing whatever to do with the language that was on the ballot, had nothing to do with the issue that was on the ballot. We drew a connection. Um, it's a connection I'm willing to defend if pressed. Um, but it's a <laughs> less direct connection, let's say, uh, to the initiative. And we ended up winning. Uh, and that happens a lot in initiatives. Look, the, uh, uh, one of the standard sort of uh, approaches on the no side of initiatives is to say, oh yeah, when they have this, these kind of numbers, this is a good idea, but there's a problem with the way this is written. They're going to actually come to your house at 3 o'clock in the morning and check your meter. You don't want that, do you? That's what's going to be the result here. Um, so we're all in favor of renewable energy, but not this one. Um, and people think, oh, well, then I'll have an opportunity to vote on another one next year. Why, you know, say no to this one? So there are lots of ways to win initiatives that have relatively little to do with the underlying issue. Uh, and, and so uh, essentially what you do to try to beat something is create fear, whether it's, whether it's a legitimate fear or, or, or not. There's uncertainty. That's, that's what they'll try to do on the energy choice, and that's what they would... What, and there's not going to be the same kind of money spent uh, against right. the RPS, but that's how you win an initiative, even if it starts out that high. You scare people. Well, you point out the problems that will ensue uh, as a result of their passing the initiative. Yes. I like the way I said it better. All right. <laughs> so I have, not, I have not yet seen any really good polling on school choice uh, in this state. And I'm glad we finally got, got a baseline here because it's been an incredibly controversial uh, issue. So let's, let's talk about the, the – we asked the straight-up question first about ESAs, and let's show people what that showed. Yes, and I will say I work for uh, various education organizations, teachers organizations, and this is not my side of the issue. Um, but the reality is, uh, in the state, we have a, a plurality, not a majority, plurality, 49% in favor of education savings accounts, 38% opposed, so a 10-point margin. Uh, uh, we find much more support uh, uh, among Republicans and among Democrats, but again, even among Democrats, we have a plurality in favor of, of this idea. Latinos, very strongly in favor uh, of this idea. Uh, younger folks, that is with people uh, with, who are of an age where they might have kids in school, uh, much more likely to be in favor of this. Older voters, a little bit more likely to oppose. So there are some demographic differences, but right now, uh, a plurality but not a majority uh, support this idea. Um, it's a great name, I will say, education savings accounts. It sounds like people are saving their own money. Obviously, they're not. Um, taxpayers are paying this. We made that clear in the, uh, right. uh, in the question. Um, and that was not uh, sufficient, at least in this iteration, to, uh, to change that plurality. And it's favor. just 
compared to the rest of the state, it's absolutely huge in, Cl in Clark County. I mean, people, yes. and this is where, of course, there have been more problems in, the, in, in, in lower ed than anywhere else. I mean, it's, I, I think there's a real appeal down, down here that's going to be difficult for opponents, I think, to knock down. It is. Now, again, yes, it is. Okay. I mean, with public opinion, it's a, you know, in the legislature, it's a different story. Yeah, and, and indeed, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that is true. Uh, we asked another question uh, about special needs uh, education savings, savings accounts, and this was even bigger. Yes, special needs piece, uh, very strong, 70% in support. You see the language uh, here. Uh, it's a little bit longer because it has to be explained a little bit. But as you see on the next slide, 70% support, 14% uh, oppose uh, this idea of the uh, uh, special needs accounts. Uh, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of uh, interest in helping those kids that have special needs and a recognition that they need individualized attention. And so uh, this, uh, th this measure, the way it's phrased, uh, speaks to that need for individualized instruction. Have you seen polling anywhere in, in general on, on, the, on the argument against school choice? You shouldn't be using public money to finance private religious education. Have you seen polling on that, if yes. it's presented that way? And, and I will say around the country in general, when you make that argument, when you, when you uh, ask the question in that way, you get overwhelming majority saying you should not be using public money to uh, finance private parochial uh, schools, and that's even more so when you include things like online education, things like that. Um, so there is a, a, a very strong bias in the country as a whole against that. Um, again, you do have sort of good language here with the education savings accounts, with the name and so on, um, and it, it's, at least here, able to overcome that. It's not the answer you would get nationally on this question, um, but uh, uh, the special needs account, honestly, never looked at that anyplace else but here, but it is understandable given the special needs of special needs students. It seems to me that Nevada is different in this sense, and I've been covering politics here a long time, as you know, is that for decades people here have either experienced or been told that the, that the education system is not working, it's not properly funded, things are, things are bad. It's bad here. K through 12 education. If you can, if this kind of inculcation occurs over decades, when people are presented with, you know what, uh, uh, you can have $5,000, I think they're just going to be more receptive uh, in a place like this because of what's going on here. Well, it's interesting. You know, uh, we find that, again, we, I haven't looked at this here, so I don't know the answer, but in a lot of other states and certainly nationally, uh, there is what I call the I'm okay, but you're not phenomenon. So if you ask people about the kids, schools their kids go to, they say, oh, they're good. If you ask about schools in the state, they're less good. If you ask about schools nationally, terrible. Um, this is like your congressman, how you feel about your exactly, congressman. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> My congressman's not so bad, the rest of them are all terrible. Right. And how it is that everybody else is, everyone's good, but everyone else is bad, doesn't work very well. But in any right. event, that is the way that people, you know, sort of think about these issues. And I don't know whether that's true here or not, but in general, the closer you are, the closer the question is to people's everyday lives, the more likely they are to be positive about schools, the farther away you are the more likely they are to be negative. All right, I want to show the final slide only because it's your obvious attempt to totally suck up to me and get more business. <laughs> let's, let's see what that, do we have that one? Yes, what does it all mean? Uh, 2018, obviously going to be a very exciting political year uh, in Nevada. Uh, and once again, the state's going to be the epicenter of national politics with both the governor's race, the Senate races, uh, Senate race, and a number of House races as well. This is going to be where a lot of stuff is happening. We matter, don't we, Mark? You do. Huh? So let me just wrap this up, uh, and this, thanks for your great presentation here. I've been meaning to ask you this question for a long time, and, I, and, and uh, because I'm curious about it too. As a pollster through the years, 
What is it about the media reporting on polls that drives you batty, just drives you crazy? Um, where to start? Um, <laughs> I knew that was a setup. Yes. Now, well, look, there, there are a couple of things. First of all, there is not, there is often not exactly the kind of distinction that you made at the outset, which is to say the fact that something's true today doesn't mean it's going to be true tomorrow, especially when tomorrow is six months or six weeks or whatever down the road. Uh, there is sort of an assumption that if this is where it is today, that's where it's going to be tomorrow and the race is over. Uh, and that just is often not the case for the reasons we've discussed. Uh, second, there is a, uh, a tendency to uh, both overappreciate and underappreciate the margin of error uh, in surveys. What do I mean by both? Well, on the one hand, uh, yes, you might have a five-point margin of error. But it's not equally likely that somebody is five points ahead and five points behind. Those are not equally likely uh, situations. It is much more like the greatest single likelihood is that that number in the poll is exactly right. And the second greatest likelihood is that it's pretty close to that. And the next greatest likelihood is that, you know, it's, it's a bell curve. And so the farther, the, the farther out the difference, uh, the less likely it is. Um, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, and so people you know, are saying, well, this is a margin of error, only, and you get down to the last week. You're only ahead by five points. That's a margin of error of the poll. Okay, that's really not very meaningful uh, analysis. On the flip side, um, people will look and say, oh, there's a two-point change in the vote from last week. Um, it's huge momentum for, for this candidate. Well, the truth is the margin of error for comparing two polls, not to go into statistics here, but it's about one and a half times the margin of error for each. So you're talking about a larger margin of error to begin with. But even a two-point change, if you weren't even cognizant of that fact, that's just not a very big deal. So people overinterpret small changes. They underinterpret uh, meaningful differences. Does it drive you crazy that when folks in our business essentially uh, report on polls as if all polls are created equal. In other words, a lot of people won't dive into the internals and look. They'll, they'll, they'll say some guy that uh, put a program into a computer and started robocalling uh, people is the same as, as a Melman poll. Uh, the, Drives me particularly crazy, yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah no, look, I mean, th there are differences in quality. and It's changed so much since you first started yes, polling. Yes, it, it is a lot harder to do this right than it used to be, vastly harder. And the people who are doing robo-polls and so on, they're doing it less well than it used to be done. Uh, and in a situation where it's really harder to do it right. Um, one other point I would just make about this. The fact that something's right at the end doesn't mean it was right at the beginning and the middle, okay? Um, that a particular poll, and there, so there are, without naming names, there are a lot of polls that when they get to the end, um, they're sort of what we call a herding factor. That is to say, they look at everyone else's poll and they say, well, gee, we should probably be where everybody else is. And they sort of make it happen. And, you know, through waiting, which you're not really aware of the magic things they're doing, but they're really just sort of making it up to get to where they think it should be. Um, but that doesn't mean they were right earlier on. I mean, I, my, one of my favorite examples of this is an old one, but it, we, we did a uh, race for governor for uh, Jim Doyle in Wisconsin some years ago, um, and because it's an old story, I can tell it. Um, we were running against a congressman uh, who represented Green Bay, a significant part of the state, but a pretty isolated part of the state. Um, he was not very well known at all. And we had a race that sort of looked like this, with, with uh, Jim Doyle being fairly flat and this Republican congressman sort of coming up towards us, but never got there. If you look at some of the other polls, they would say this race was tied from the beginning, and all of a sudden Jim Doyle put on a, a, a got a margin out of it. 
It, it's a ridiculous story. I mean, given the facts, it's a ridiculous story. Yet that was a story that people actually believed because they looked at those public polls that were really very poorly done, poorly executed, and believed the story was right. We, at the end, we both had the same numbers, uh, and we were both right in that sense. But the story we told about what happened in that race was really quite different. So finally, final question, since it is April 24th, can we be confident that Mark Melman's was right earlier and later in Nevada? Sorry. That, that, right, is this poll right, Mark? It's right today. <laughs> that is the correct answer. Well, it was really answer. right last week, but that's probably the, still right today. That is the correct answer. Thanks so much <laughs> Thank for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. I'm John Ralston. We'll talk to you next week.